Hello, everyone, and welcome to the March 30th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. In a closely watched case, the United States Supreme Court has just expanded the obligations of employers to provide disability accommodations in a new ruling announced this week. In the case of Young versus United Parcel Service, the Supreme Court sided with a former driver that her company discriminated against her when it refused to lighten her work duties while she was pregnant. A federal district court judge and an appeals court had earlier ruled in favor of UPS. The case focused on whether, under a federal law called the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, employers must provide accommodations for pregnant workers who may have physical limitations on tasks they can perform. Peggy Young became pregnant in 2006. She made her request for an accommodation after a midwife advised that she not be required to lift packages weighing more than 20 pounds. Writing for the majority, Liberal Justice Stephen Breyer said the lower court failed to consider the effects of UPS policies that covered non-pregnant workers who might have disabilities, injuries, or otherwise might need accommodations. Justice Breyer said, There is a genuine dispute as to whether UPS provided more favorable treatment to at least some employees whose situation cannot reasonably be distinguished from Mrs. Young's. Conservative Justice Antonin Scalia, joined by Anthony Kennedy and Clarence Thomas, wrote a dissenting opinion accusing the court majority of coming up with an interpretation that is as dubious in principle as it is senseless in practice. Young's attorneys said the court made clear that employers may not refuse to accommodate pregnant workers based on considerations of cost or convenience when they accommodate other workers. UPS said it was confident it would ultimately win the case after it is sent back for trial. UPS said last October that starting this past January, it would begin providing accommodations for pregnant women. The impact of the ruling could be limited in part because a 2008 amendment to the Americans with Disabilities Act could now protect women in Young's situation. The U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission has said employees must offer accommodations to pregnant women just as they do for other workers with similar physical limitations. A workers' compensation claims administrator's hostile work environment claim was affirmed by the Court of Appeals. Here's what happened in the case of Myra's versus San Francisco Housing Authority. Beverly Myras was hired by the San Francisco Housing Authority in 2006 as a claims assistant. In 2007, she was promoted to workers' compensation analyst. Her employment was governed by a union memorandum of understanding prepared by the San Francisco Municipal Executives Association. In 2009, Myras injured her right knee at work and filed a workers' compensation claim. She continued to work full-time without any restrictions until she had surgery on her injured right knee. 
She was then released to return to modified work with the restriction to be seated and stand and walking only for personal needs only. She was not allowed to lift over 10 pounds and drive for work, and she must work in a location free from tripping hazards. Her employer indicated it would accommodate her restrictions, but upon returning to work, she experienced increased pain now in her left knee. It was at first disputed that the left knee was injured as a result of employment. While seeking clarification of the cause of her left knee pain, her entire department was laid off as a result of departmental restructuring. Myries then sued her employer for disability discrimination and added a fourth and fifth cause of action for hostile work environment, harassment, and wrongful discharge premised on her allegations of retaliation for taking workers' compensation leave. The employer argued that Myries and the rest of the department was laid off for a legitimate reason to restructure the department for improved efficiency and due to reduced federal funding and a budget shortfall. Myries, on the other hand, asserted that it retaliated against her for taking workers' compensation leave. In support of her contention, a former special assistant to the executive director testified that there were a number of people in her department that her supervisors were having trouble with. So, they decided to deal with the problems by restructuring and laying everyone off. As a result of the layoff, Myries testified that she suffered a loss of her annual salary of approximately $81,000 a year for almost three years, as well as fringe and retirement benefits. After trial, the jury returned verdicts in favor of the employer on the discrimination causes of action. With respect to the hostile work environment, harassment, the jury found in Myra's favor and awarded her $35,000 in non-economic damages. Post-judgment interest was awarded in the amount of 10% and Myra's was awarded attorney fees and costs. Both parties were upset and appealed. With the exception of post-judgment interest in the amount of 10%, the Court of Appeal found no prejudicial error and after reducing the interest to 7%, affirmed the judgment in the unpublished case. Thus, the verdicts against her on the discrimination causes of action were affirmed, but the Court of Appeal agreed there was evidence in support of her claim of a hostile work environment. Her employer made comments before her injury, such as that employees taking workers' compensation leave were malingerers, abused the system, and filed fraudulent claims. Another comment that was made was, how can the workers' comp person be out on workers' comp? And now our fraud report. Detectives from the California Department of Insurance arrested a 63-year-old Los Angeles doctor and his son for working while claiming disability benefits. The two arrested were 63-year-old Dr. Glenn Neal Ledesma, owner of California Dermatology Center Incorporated, and its 49-year-old CEO Jonathan Ledesma, Glenn Ledesma's adopted son. Both are charged with multiple felony counts of healthcare disability fraud for presenting false claims. The suspects allegedly collected disability benefits totaling more than $1.8 million while continuing to work and practice medicine.
Dr. Ledesma first submitted a disability claim in 1997, stating he was unable to treat patients due to his medical condition. His insurer told him he could receive disability benefits while running his corporation, but was not allowed to treat patients or practice medicine. But in 2008, Dr. Ledesma continued collecting disability payments while resuming his medical practice and treating patients. From 2008 to 2013, he treated more than 2,900 patients while simultaneously collecting over $1.5 million in disability benefits. In 2008, his son, Jonathan Ledesma, filed a disability claim with Unum Life Insurance Company of America, indicating he was also unable to work due to medical reasons. He denied knowing Dr. Glenn Ledesma, even though he listed the doctor as his employer. And later investigators discovered that Jonathan Ledesma was in fact the CEO of one of eight of Dr. Ledesma's medical corporations and also his adopted son. From then on, Jonathan Ledesma collected more than $200,000 in disability benefits while performing administrative duties as CEO. Both suspects have been arrested and booked into the inmate reception center in Los Angeles. Bail is set at $50,000 for each, and they each face 20 years in state prison if convicted on all counts. The case is being prosecuted by the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office. Insurance Commissioner Dave Jones says that their criminal activity is part of the health insurance fraud epidemic that totals billions of dollars annually and results in higher premiums for all consumers. 55-year-old Harry Manassian of Granada Hills, the owner of Pacific Construction, was arrested on four felony counts of workers' compensation insurance fraud after refusing to report an employee's serious injury to the state compensation insurance fund. One of his employees received a puncture wound to his foot while on a job site, which became infected. The seriousness of the infection led to the employee's leg being amputated below the knee. The employee reported the injury to his employer, but Manassian refused to report it to the state compensation insurance fund, his comp carrier, and denied workers' compensation coverage for his employee. The employee was ultimately awarded permanent disability after he filed a claim with the insurer. The department's investigation began after the state compensation insurance fund reported Manassian and that he had a history of failing to report employee injuries. The investigation reveal, revealed that Manassian owed nearly $12,000 in workers' compensation insurance premiums and failed to deduct required payroll taxes and Social Security for all of his employees. He was booked in, at the Los Angeles County Jail Twin Towers Inmate Reception Center. His bail has been set at $120,000. If convicted on all counts, Manassian faces a maximum of five years in county jail. This case is being prosecuted by the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office. A federal jury in Los Angeles found the owner of a medical supply company guilty of four counts of health care fraud in connection with a $3.3 million Medicare fraud scheme. 
55-year-old Hakop Gambarian of East Hollywood, the owner of Colonial Medical Supply, was convicted of four counts of health care fraud. Trial evidence showed that Gambarian paid cash kickbacks to medical clinics for fraudulent prescriptions for durable medical equipment, such as expensive power wheelchairs, which the patients did not need. He then used these prescriptions to bill Medicare for the unnecessary power wheelchairs and other equipment. Many of the beneficiaries were able to walk without assistance. In one instance, Gambarian carried a power wheelchair up a flight of stairs for a woman who lived on a second-floor apartment with no elevator. In another instance, the power wheelchair would not fit inside the beneficiary's home, so Gambarian put it in the beneficiary's garage. Gambarian generated false documentation to support the fraudulent claims, including fake home assessments that made it appear that home assessments had occurred when they had not. He also photocopied beneficiary signatures hundreds of times to create the appearance that the beneficiaries consented to ongoing durable medical equipment rentals. In reality, at least two of the beneficiaries had passed away prior to the date they supposedly signed the rental agreements. The evidence showed that he submitted approximately $3.3 million in false and fraudulent claims to Medicare and received more than $1.7 million on those claims. And in regulatory news, auditors who reported on the state of the City of Los Angeles Workers' Compensation Program claimed that 45% of LAPD officers who answered a survey agreed that their comp claims were excessive. The pair of city audits said that Los Angeles police and firefighters work in a culture that encourages filing excessive workers' compensation claims. And taxpayers pay up to $28 million a year for what amounts to preventable injuries. The majority of recent injuries claimed by firefighters occurred while doing things other than responding to emergencies. Some injuries occurred while maintaining equipment, playing racquetball, and preparing food at their fire stations. LA police, meanwhile, are paid for on-the-job injuries more often than officers in comparable departments. Two-thirds of city firefighters and 60% of police officers filed an on-the-job injury claim in the last three years, and nearly half of those employees have filed more than one claim during that time. The city audits come months after a Los Angeles Times investigation found steep increases in payments to injured police and firefighters. Only a small percentage of claims in recent years were attributed to injuries suffered fighting fires or confronting combative suspects. The most common cause was cumulative trauma claims that are not linked to a specific on-the-job injury. A disproportionate amount of injury pay was going to employees who filed consecutive claims reporting a new injury just as a previous leave was about to end. The city audits found that workers' compensation costs for sworn employees have increased by 35% over the last five years to $141 million in 2014. 
Surveys sent to police officers by the auditors showed 45% agreed that there is an excessive number of workers' compensation claims filed at the department, while a third of firefighters believed questionable claims had been filed by their colleagues. The police and fire departments are shielded from the full cost of workers' compensation claims because they don't have to pay the medical bills. Those costs, nearly $85 million over the last four years, are covered by a separate city fund. The auditors recommended that the departments be made to pay medical bills out of their own budgets so that management may be sufficiently aware of and held accountable for the impact of rising claims and costs. And the departments suffer in other ways. Last year's fire officials told the Times they were spending more than $51,000 per day or nearly $19 million annually on overtime to cover shifts left vacant by firefighters out with injuries. At the police department, where overtime has been severely restricted, the rising number of injury leaves meant fewer officers on the street. Nearly two dozen major corporations, including Walmart, Nordstrom, and Safeway, are listed as founding members of the Association for Responsible Alternatives to Workers' Compensation. This organization that wants to change workers' comp laws in all 50 states to allow opt-out programs. It has already helped write pending legislation in Tennessee. Option is its term for allowing employers to elect an alternative to traditional workers' compensation insurance. Each state may have different requirements for employers that choose to exercise an option. But the fundamental principles of any alternative are to improve access to quality health care, increase employee accountability, improve medical and return-to-work outcomes, and reduce claims costs. It says that allowing an option creates competition that can reduce rates and drive improvements to the workers' comp systems. Employers that opt out would still be compelled to purchase workers' comp plans, but they would be allowed to write their own rules governing when, for how long, and for which reasons an injured employee can access medical benefits and wages. Two states, Texas and Oklahoma, already allow employers to opt out of state-mandated workers' comp. Now Senator Mark Green introduced the opt-out bill for Tennessee. Green's proposal, which supporters are calling the Tennessee option, bears many of the hallmarks of the Texas and Oklahoma system. It allows businesses to place strict spending caps on each injured worker and to pick and choose which medical expenses to cover. Oklahoma's legislature took four years to create its opt-out system, but the new organization hopes to achieve the same thing in Tennessee in a single legislative session, and then it's on to the next state. These initiatives have spawned expected heated controversy. The president of the Tennessee AFL-CIO Labor Council claims the legislation is designed as a cost-saving measure for the employer. It says that anywhere they save a dollar, it costs the employees a dollar. It's just a shift in costs. California has had for years its own carve-out program, 
which allows some employers to opt out of the work comp system. Carve-out programs allow employers and unions in California to create their own alternatives for workers' compensation benefits delivery and dispute resolution under a collective bargaining agreement. The eligibility of parties to participate in such a program must be approved by the administrative director of the Division of Workers' Compensation. It remains to be seen if opt-out programs gain traction nationwide. And in medical news, medical experts are reporting that more drug-resistant superbugs are reaching the crisis level. They claim that over the next 35 years, multi-drug-resistant tuberculosis will kill 75 million people and could cost the global economy a cumulative $16.7 trillion. The World Health Organization says that multidrug-resistant tuberculosis fails to respond to at least the two most powerful anti-TB drugs. And now it says that multidrug-resistant TB was at crisis levels with about 480,000 new cases in 2013. They say it is a man-made problem caused by regular TB patients being given the wrong medicines or doses or failing to complete their treatment which is highly toxic and can take up to two years. The UK all-party parliamentary group on global tuberculosis is now urging governments to do more to improve research and cooperation. The group urged governments to set up a research and development fund, target investments into basic research, and increase support for bilateral TB programs. But since Tuberculosis primarily affects the poorest and most vulnerable in society. There is little commercial incentive to develop new drugs, said co-chairman of the group. The fight against TB, the world's second deadliest infectious disease after HIV, is also hampered by a lack of an effective vaccine. The only TB vaccine protects some children from severe forms of TB, including one that affects the brain but is unreliable in preventing TB in the lung, which is the most common form of the disease. TB, which spreads through the coughs and sneezes of an infected person, killed 1.5 million people worldwide in 2013, according to the World Health Organization. Putting that number into perspective can be done by comparing the death rate for Ebola, the infection that has caused recent international medical panic. The CDC reports the entire Ebola international death count as of this month to be less than 11,000 people. The risk of death by TB is magnitudes higher than the risk of death by Ebola infection. The workers' compensation community is not immune to the cost effects of out-of-control superbugs. Infectious diseases can become a costly problem in workers' compensation claims. Claims can arise as a result of infections on the job, infections during treatment for an industrial injury, or infections to healthcare workers. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. 
And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts on special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.